that we've been able to come together today and worship you and seek you. And I pray, Lord God, that you would just give me wisdom and clarity as I share your message today, that it would be something that speaks to each one of us in the right ways and that you would change something within us as a result of church this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Cool. So last week, Swelly shared a message looking at uh, Moses' life and the way that God moved to bring Israel out of oppression and slavery and into freedom and the way that God brought justice and dignity to the captives through Moses and what happened at that time. And the cool thing is God wants to keep doing the same thing through us now. So for a really long time, the main scripture that really defined how I viewed myself in God and what I thought God wanted me to do here in my time on earth was the first few passages of Isaiah 61. So this scripture itself describes Jesus and the anointing of God on Jesus. But Jesus has commissioned us to do the same things he did and even greater things. So it's for us as well. It's not just for him. It's for each and every one of us. So Isaiah 61 tells us, The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. He has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favour has come and with it, the day of God's anger against their enemies. To all who mourn in Israel, he will give a crown of beauty for ashes, a joyous blessing instead of mourning, festive praise instead of despair. In their righteousness, they will be like great oaks that the Lord has planted for his own glory. Love that. It was 19 and a half years before God gave me another scripture that felt so powerful in my life that it felt like it was an identity-shaping scripture. And that happened early this year. It was the first church service after New Year's and we were over in Perth visiting family and we were at Hillsong Perth. And that verse was Proverbs 31, 25. She's clothed with strength and dignity and she laughs without fear for the future. Now, I got this and I went, yes, that is amazing. That is what I need right now. The last few years have sucked and it is time for me to receive something really good instead of just working really hard all the time and feeling like I'm drowning. I should have known better. So all year... I've kind of gone, but God, you promised me strength, you promised me dignity, you promised me peace. I felt it so strongly that I even got those words added into a tattoo that I have, because that's what I do. Um, and all year I've just grappled with it, going, God, there is no strength, there is no dignity, this is the least dignified year of my life. There is no peace, well, there's moments of peace, but there's no peace. Where's, where's the promise? What happened to that promise? And literally a couple of days before I was preparing this message, God just spoke to me and he said, I wasn't giving them to you like that. I was going to forge them in you this year. And I thought, well, crap, that's not the way I interpreted that. <laughs> and this year sucked. And all I know looking back is that if the things that had happened this year, though, had happened last year or the year before, 
it would have broken me. And it hasn't. And so now I can look back with a more realistic interpretation of the word God gave me and see that he has been forging those things. And as he's been forging those things, he's really given me an increased understanding and passion for justice in this world and to recognise those things and my authority in him to do something about it. And so that's the bit that I want to focus on today. So when we were pregnant with Jasper, we had a really strong sense of who God was going to make him to be, the man he was going to grow up to be. And that sense that he would be a man of strength and justice. And I thought, that's amazing in my naivety, not thinking about what it would be like to parent a toddler whose characteristics were strength and justice. For those of you who know Jasper, he is a little bulldozer tank and he has an incredible sense of personal justice. Um, very age appropriate, it's all about me, he's four years old, um, and he very quickly recognises when someone has done the wrong thing to him. They ate my biscuit and it all hits the fan. Um, but he's starting to learn the other aspects of justice and that's kind of cool to watch. So he and Jay have developed a bit of an unfortunate habit um, recently of bringing things home that are not theirs. So if you see toys missing from creche, come and check my house. Um, they do it from childcare, anywhere they go. If there is something they want, they take it. We've had lots and lots of conversations about this. iPad time has been confiscated, treats have been confiscated, nothing's changed, they still kept doing it. So we thought, okay, we've got to do something different here, the message isn't getting through. So we started a thing where if they brought home something that wasn't theirs, when we returned that thing, they had to also donate one of their things to whoever they took it from. So there's a few random toys out at creche that weren't there before, and childcare have inherited a little bag of toys. Um, but the other week, Jasper came home with a Hot Wheels car from creche. And when we discovered it, well, not from creche, from childcare, and when we discovered it, he just went straight to his room, picked up a toy that he actually plays with, not just one of the random ones hidden under a bed somewhere, and he brought it out and he put it in his bag to take back to school when he returned the original one and apologised. And I thought, oh, starting to get it. He's starting to understand that concept of repairing something that you've broken through your actions. And for me, that's what justice is. It's about our actions repairing something that's been broken in someone else's life. It's about righting something that's been wronged by adding something into it, not subtracting it. So I did some training through work recently and I was really, really frustrated. It was four days of training. I had to go to Sydney, be away from family. I'm not a huge fan of Sydney at the best of times. There's just too many people. Um, and I, I was up there and I was just like, this training, I don't get it. I've got a manual this thick that tells me the stuff I need to know and you haven't even referred to it once. I think over the four days they maybe referred to it twice saying this is the contents page and you can find this particular thing on this page in there. And so I was just like, oh, why didn't you just give me the manual and let me read it? 
But then afterwards, it dawned on me. The whole reason that we had that training wasn't to teach us how to do the things. It was to instill in us an urgency about why it mattered that we did things differently. And that kind of blew my head a little bit because I'm, I'm a processes person. I like my ducks lined up. I want to know the how to do things. And this training really was about the why we needed to do things differently. And so today, I'm going to talk to you about justice and I'm going to talk to you about dignity. But I'm not going to tell you how to do those things. I'm going to tell you why it matters and why we as the church need to stand up and do things differently. Because I could give you 10 steps for what you need to do. You know, step one, step two, step three, going on. But if it doesn't matter to you about why you should be doing it, you're not going to do it. So today's all about the why. So when we think of justice, we often think of law enforcement. Most people think of the police, the legal courts, all that system. That's a punitive justice. It focuses on a punishment for crimes and it really does very little to bring restoration to the lives of the people who have experienced that injustice. It doesn't heal the brokenness and it doesn't do anything for the person who has committed those wrongs either, really, to bring them to change in their lives. When we focus on a punitive justice system, God's healing doesn't flow. And that's what our world needs. So when we read the Bible, ultimately, we're reading God's healing strategy for the world. It's his work and his plan to bring healing to all of creation. And it's centred on the work of communities like ours who love God, who know God's love, and can share it to the world around them. So in the Old Testament, there's lots of different terms that are used in describing the healing strategy of God. So the main ones are shalom, which means peace, hesed, which is loving kindness, mispat, and tedeska. I've asked Adam to help me pronounce that one and I may still have it wrong. Um, and those ones mean righteousness and justice. And so these terms are often clustered together in a mutually reinforcing way. So you cluster them together and they add into each other to give a bigger picture of what God's healing looks like. And so justice is one of the most prominent things in God's healing strategy for mankind. And if we ignore it, it's worse for our communities because they're missing out on the wholeness of what God has for them. It's a biblical restorative justice. It's about making individuals, communities and everything that exists come back to a place of wholeness. It upholds goodness and impartiality. So there is no us and them. It's for everyone. It's not about bringing punishment to people. It's about exchanging brokenness for wholeness. It is in itself an act of restoration. And it stands at the centre of who God is and what he wants from us while we're here. So then dignity comes hand in hand with justice. And dignity is the right of every person to be valued and respected for their own sake based on their own intrinsic value as a person created by God. And it includes the right to be treated ethically because of that value. 
separate to anything they do in their life. They are created in the image of God. They have intrinsic value. And dignity is about bringing justice to those lives so they can be restored and walk in that purpose. So as we restore people to wholeness by doing justice, we give them back their dignity. And that can only be a good thing. So we see the exchange of justice bringing restoration and dignity really clearly in Isaiah 61. So justice takes the pain of brokenness and it brings comfort. Justice is the voice that says you will be released no matter what binds you. It is the voice of authority that gives that freedom. Justice listens to the pain of those who are mourning and gives hope for the days to come. Justice takes ashes and brings life and it brings beauty. It takes mourning and exchanges it for joy and it takes despair and it exchanges it for praise. Justice raises people up into great oaks planted by God for his own glory. So we're told that the Spirit of God was on Jesus and therefore on us. Why would God anoint us for this work if he didn't want us to do it? Micah 6.8 says, No, O people, the Lord has told you what is good and this is what he requires of you, to do what is right, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. That sounds like justice to me. And it's not just an Old Testament thing. James 1.27 tells us, Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. The ministry of justice is completely centred on loving people and loving our neighbours. It steps beyond equality and fairness into a generosity that brings healing through inclusiveness. It breaks down the alienations of the haves and the have-nots, of the we believe and they don't believe, all those divides. So it's really easy to look around the world and to see events and the impacts of injustice. We are saturated with images of war and poverty and disease from around the world. But sometimes it's harder to see the injustice that's in our own community and in our own backyard. So I'm going to give you some stats from Australia about some of the injustice that happens in our country. This is a snippet. Um, they have statistics for everything, but you don't need to know all of that. You just need to know enough to get why this matters. So, in 2016 to 2017, 72,000 women, 34,000 children and 9,000 men sought homelessness services due to fleeing family or domestic violence. That's just the ones who accessed the services. One in three women in Australia have experienced physical or sexual violence by someone who's known to them. One in four children are exposed to domestic violence. One in three victims of sexual assault and family or domestic violence are men. That's a stat that you don't hear often. Indigenous women and children are 35 times more likely than the wider female population to be hospitalised due to family violence. When you think about the size of the Indigenous population, 35 times more likely. 
41 women have been killed in Australia by acts of violence this year so far, more than one a week. Last year, the whole total for the year was 51. Violence against women is estimated to cost the Australian economy $21.7 billion a year. And that doesn't take into account the added cost of violence against men and children or the cost of violence that isn't recorded because people haven't disclosed it. I think it would probably easily be double or triple that amount of money. In 2010, the Australian Institute of Criminology released a paper that said, childhood sexual abuse continues to occur in our communities at an alarming rate, with up to 30% of children experiencing child sexual abuse of any kind, and between five and 10% experiencing severe abuse. That's horrendous. Other research I've read talks about the reported cases of sexual abuse increasing significantly every single year. <coughs> Feel the weight of that for a moment. So statistics are incomplete. They don't tell the full picture. We know that the amount of violence and injustice that's reported to authorities is a drop in the ocean of what's actually happening. I would say out of most of the families I've worked with where there's domestic violence, maybe 10% have reported to police at different times, if that much. So the number of people seeking homelessness, or seeking help for homelessness due to family domestic violence will be significantly lower than the people actually experiencing that and needing that. There's one study that found that 80% of women had not reported sexual abuse, including rape. So our sexual abuse statistics are likely to be off by 80%. And then some of the injustice that exists in Australia actually can't even be counted. Historically, our country, in our country, the people charged with the responsibility to protect the most vulnerable people in our society has often perpetrated some of the worst abuse. Um, we will have all heard in the news about the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Abuse. I've seen footage of some of the testimonies through work and heard some of the testimonies and all I could do was weep at the experiences of these women and children primarily, but not just women and children, also um, young boys and men, by the people who were meant to protect them. And that covers abuse in the church, as well as in institutions for foster care and that sort of thing. And then beyond that, our First Nations people are still walking out the impact of colonisation of invasion, of being stripped of their land, resources, culture, country, identity and their children. It is very rare to spo speak to an Aboriginal person who has not felt the impact of that in their family, whether it's something they're really conscious of or not. And then whatever your view, I know that this is a highly politicised thing, 
but whatever your view on how we should be responding as a country to the global refugee crisis, there is still currently 117 children imprisoned on Nauru by our government after five years. And there's been a lot of stuff in the news just this last week about a thing called resignation syndrome, which is described as a form of escape dissociation in which traumatised children are so overwhelmed by the stress and trauma that they're experiencing that they go into a state where they are semi-conscious, withdrawing from everyone. They stop eating and drinking and talking and eventually become unconscious. That's what our government is doing to kids. <coughs> kids who have sought safety. I think just in this last week, three children have been taken off of Nauru because of either starting to enter this resignation syndrome or other really significant mental health things. One girl set herself on fire. Another boy reached a weight of 36 kilograms. He was 12 years old because of, you know, these early stages of the resignation syndrome. So over the last five years, we've got adults and children that our government is treating in this way, who are not accessing health care, mental health care, who are dying, who are living in conditions that for me, when I go out and I'm working with families and I'm assessing safety, not a single one of those conditions for safety would be met on Nauru. That's the sort of condition that we would be removing children from to place into foster care, not that we would be putting them into. Human rights are being disrespected horrifically. Human rights that everyone should have access to by that intrinsic value placed in them by God. And I know that I would not accept that treatment for any one of my friends or family members, far less my own children. So why is it okay for those people? So locally, I don't know if you guys have read it recently, but there's a man who has previously been imprisoned for many sexual offences against children who was living in our community. Whilst living in our community, he continued to sexually abuse children. He's just been charged with 17 fresh counts relating to sexual abuse against our children in our community. And through work, I've seen firsthand the impact of that over the recent years. But we didn't know this was the cause until one brave young person finally spoke out. All around us, people are self-medicating with drugs to fill the gaps left by injustice. They're literally killing themselves because of their profound absence of hope. And us as the church, we're not immune to that. I've personally spoken to numerous women over the years here about domestic violence in their own relationships, perpetrated by Christian men and non-Christian men. I've worked with families during the week in relation to sexual abuse, family violence, drug abuse, neglect, mental health issues, all the different things that can lead to the abuse of children and seen those families here on a Sunday where they pretend everything's fine. People who are perpetrating injustice and who are experiencing injustice need to be here. But we as the church need to drop the perception of it's us and them because this stuff happens in our churches and we need to be able to see it and respond to it. There's no us and them, the Christians and the non-Christians. This stuff happens in everyone's lives. 
and we need to be able to respond to bring restorative justice here in the church and outside the four walls. The more that I work with children who've experienced trauma, and I'm tipping on about 12 years, or 12 years here in Oladulla, longer than that in Perth, probably about 20 years working with kids who've experienced some form of trauma, the more I see that those kids' own parents have experienced their own significant trauma. It is incredibly rare that you come across a parent who's like, oh yeah, I beat the crap out of them because I felt like it, without having experienced their own trauma. And the difficult thing is, the more and more generations of trauma someone has in their family, the less equipped they are to respond differently. You don't know what you don't know. And so if all you've experienced is abuse and all your parents experienced was abuse and all your grandparents experienced is abuse, what are you gonna give your kids? We need to stop the cycle. It's what God's called us to do. So injustice very clearly leads to trauma. Trauma changes our biology in our bodies at a core level and therefore it changes our biography and the story of our life. It literally rewrites our brain connections, which I've shared about before during communion, and impacts on our DNA. It can literally predict social and health outcomes later in life. There's studies being done that show that specific combinations of adverse early childhood experiences are linked to specific outcomes later in life. So an example of this is a really strong relationship between childhood sexual abuse in children and adult endometriosis and cervical cancer. A relationship that is stronger than what you would expect by chance and that some of the people involved in this research are saying is a direct causation effect, which is a big call to make. So, lots of heavy information there, but our God is a God of justice and healing and mercy and we have a role to play in this. So in Luke 15, Jesus tells us the parable of the lost son. In verse 20, we're told of when the lost son returns. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him and kissed him. So while the son was a long way off, the father responded to restore dignity and justice. He did not wait for an apology. He didn't wait for salvation. He did it as soon as he saw him coming and saw the pain and knew that something needed to be restored. So this justice and this dignity I'm talking about is not just for Christians. It is for each of us because we all have had trauma in our life that needs healing and God will heal that. But I'm making us look outward today. This restorative justice is for people way before they meet God or way after, depending on the circumstances. And it is for every person, no matter who they are or what they believe. So Adam has known of this guy, Dr. Cornell West, an American Christian author for quite a while, and has very selfishly not shared his work with me. Um, I was quite annoyed when Adam was like, this guy is awesome, and I'm like, dude, you were holding out on me. I probably didn't say it quite like that, but we're in church. Um, 
So recently he was on Q&A and I loved what he was saying so much that by the end of Q&A, I'd bought two of his books on eBay. So I've got a couple of quotes from him here today. Um, he's unreal. He talks faster than I do and uses bigger words than Adam, so it's hard to keep up sometimes and I had to ask Adam to interpret some things for me, but unbelievable. So one of his quotes, um, he was talking about America here, but this is true for Australia as well. This country is in deep trouble. We've forgotten that a rich life consists fundamentally of serving others, trying to leave the world a little better than you found it. We need the courage to question the powers that be, the courage to be impatient with evil and patient with people, the courage to fight for social justice. In many instances, we will be, we will be stepping out on nothing and just hoping to land on something. But that's the struggle. To live is to wrestle with despair, yet never allow despair to have the last words. So as I wrote those statistics, I was crying. So far today, I'm getting through without crying, so that's good. Um, when I think of these types of injustice, I get so sad and so angry that my response is to cry. If we're not moved by injustice, how can we hope to receive God's anointing to do something about it? Five days a week at work, I'm confronted by the impacts of injustice in people's lives. I hear the stories, I hear the pain, and I carry the memory of them long after I finish working with a family. I've had to learn to wrestle with the despair and to let justice and dignity have the last word. I've had to learn to find hope. We have to look beyond the statistics to hear the lives and to hear the pain only then will we want things to be different. We have to be willing to do our part in doing justice right here and right now. And in the process, we will give dignity and restore lives. One of the things I find interesting is the New South Wales Government of Family and Community Services where I work and where Mark works. They've um, changed the practice model um, last year. And the three statements that kind of summarise it is doing justice, giving, it, giving dignity and seeing family. And I loved that when it came out and it spoke to my spirit. But I just think, man, if a state government can get this, how much more do we need to get it as the church? So if someone comes to you and they tell you that their partner is putting them down all the time, controlling who they can see, what they can wear, how they can spend their money, where they go, following them around, checking in on them on their phone all the time, that the person says they're constantly on eggshells, that they're fearful, or that they've been beaten, what are you going to say to that person? If a child comes to you and tells you that someone's touching them in a way that they don't like, or that mum and dad hit them last night and you can see bruises all over that child, what are you going to do? When you see people on the street, homeless and poor, and yes, homelessness happens here in Ulladulla, it's just a bit less visible. Are you gonna pass judgment and blame the person? Or are you gonna wonder what justice, injustice and pain led them to this point? 
when you hear that our farmers are in the midst of a drought so bad that their stock are dying in the fields and our farmers are dying by suicide, what are you going to give? Love what you guys are doing. I think it's often a fairly typical Christian response to say our thoughts and our prayers are with you. You see it all over Facebook. Thoughts and prayers. Prayer is good and prayer is incredibly powerful. But I'm pretty over the notion of thought and prayers. It needs action. Doing justice and restoring someone's dignity is about more than prayer. So please pray, but find something more. Let that prayer form in you a desire to move to action. So how do we actually respond? What is the action that we can take? Like I said, I don't have 10 steps for you. But hopefully as I share some of this stuff, when you're faced with this, instead of you thinking, oh, Lisa gave us 10 steps, you're going to look at a situation and go, hey, here's a hundred different things I can do. Responding to injustice is never enclosed in a box and a limit of what we can do. What we can do is endless if we've got the eyes that will see the injustice and the heart that wants to do something about it. So how do we position ourselves then? to do this. First off, we have to listen. Sounds really basic, but it's actually really hard. When you're listening to someone who's telling you horrific things, you want to withdraw and protect yourself. And we need to get rid of that self-defence mechanism to actually hear people's lives. So listening gives a voice to those who are voiceless. Having a voice is the start of regaining confidence mobility and power in your life. So justice starts when someone listens to your pain without judging you for it. This dude, I don't actually know who he is, I just saw the quote on Facebook but I loved it. David Augsburger said, being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person they are indistinguishable. Dr Cornell West Empathy is not, just, is not simply a matter of trying to imagine what others are going through, but having the will to muster enough courage to do something about it. In a way, empathy is predicated or based upon hope. So listening makes a person feel loved is the start of restoring justice. But we need to listen in a way that we can feel what people are going through and still hold a hope for what can be. So listen to people, hear their pain, listen from a position that's founded in empathy and hope, standing firm in what we know Jesus can do. Feel the weight of the words that you hear. Like those stats I read out today, there's a weight that you feel when you hear that sort of thing. Imagine that weight times by probably a hundred when you're listening to someone's actual story and the way this is impacting on their life. Listening is literally the most powerful tool I have in my casework practice and that I found in doing justice and giving dignity. But again, like prayer, there has to be more. Attentive listening is not going to change someone's life on its own. So this is where the hundred steps of what we can possibly do comes into place. People are the experts in their own life and in their own experiences. 
So if you're listening to someone's story and you're recognising the injustice and you're feeling stirred to do something, pray, listen, and then ask the person what you can do. Really simple, but so often a step that's not taken. You know, does that person need a safety plan to escape violence? Do you need to set up a little password that they SMS to you and they need to get out? Do you need to just be able to say, hey, there is always a bed for you. Come to my house when you're feeling unsafe. You know, we've got things with kids where we walk into the house and if there's a certain ornament that has been moved from this side of the mantelpiece to this side of the mantelpiece, we know that kid's in trouble. There are ways that you can work out things with people to help them communicate their need. Ask them what can work. Ask them what they need from you. But beyond that, we're not all professionals in this field. Heck, I'd hardly call myself a professional in the field and I've been working in it for years. There are professionals locally who are specialised to deal with people facing injustice. So sometimes what the biggest help is that we can give is connecting them to the right person. So if you are coming across circumstances like this in your life, first of all, report it to the relevant authorities. <laughs> 13 21 11 for the Child Protection Helpline. You know, police. There's people there who are skilled and equipped to go in and respond. But more than that, ask me or ask Josh and Sarah about counsellors and services in the community who can step in and do something for these families. So sometimes the injustice we see is bigger than a conversation, particularly with global and international injustice. And we can't play a role in bringing justice to everyone everywhere. But as we do our bit, as we do our something, that adds up and has a global impact. So if something stirs in your heart and stirs in your spirit, follow that prompting. Don't just shut it down because it hurts and it's scary and it's ugly. Go with it. Educate yourself on that issue. And in doing so, I'm convinced God will show you where you can put your hand to work and how you can move. So God's calling us to lives that do justice for others, not just for ourselves. History is full of people who oppress and people who have been oppressed. It's not disappearing. It's not going to disappear until Jesus comes back. It's always going to be here. But Jesus stood up for justice over and over again, ministering into problems of violence, brokenness, conflict and alienation. His form of justice entered directly into the world of sin and in the midst of that brokenness, he brought healing and transformation and a restoration to whole relationships. In Matthew 5, 6, we're told that God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. Are you going to hunger and thirst for this? It's a big question. It's a big commitment to make, but it's one that's needed. In Matthew 25, we read about the differences between those who are deemed just and unjust the goats and the sheep. And the points of difference for those who pursue justice are very much linked to generosity and compassion. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. 
I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. We're called to love our neighbours. We are called to bring healing into broken situations and to offer forgiveness and restoration in the face of wrongdoing. Jesus stood for justice all the way to the cross and beyond. With his sacrifice and with his love for all people, he smashed the eternal power of injustice and anointed us to minister his justice to this world. And sometimes the greatest acts of justice and dignity are small acts of kindness. Dr. West again is quoted as saying, justice is what love looks like in public. We can do that. <coughs> Martin Luther King said, any religion that professes to be concerned about the souls of people and is not concerned about the slums that damn them, the economic conditions that strangle them, and the social conditions that cripple them is a spiritually moribund religion awaiting burial. I had to ask Adam what moribund meant. It means that it's dying. So any religion that professes to be concerned about the souls of people and is not concerned about the slums that damn them, the economic conditions that strangle them, and the social conditions that cripple them is a spiritually dying religion awaiting burial. Justice is profoundly linked to our faith and our relationship with God. We can't do all the work of justice that's required in the world, but we're also not free to abandon it. I hope that today I've made you think and rethink justice. And I want to finish by reading Isaiah 58. The subheading in my Bible titles this section, True and False Worship. Doing justice and giving dignity are woven throughout this chapter and the promises of God for those who pursue justice are pretty damn good. So, shout with the voice of a trumpet blast. Shout aloud, don't be timid. Tell my people, Israel, of their sins. Yet they act so pious. They come to the temple every day and seem delighted to learn all about me. They act like a righteous nation that would never abandon the laws of its God. They ask me to take action on their behalf, pretending they want me to be near. We have fasted before you, they say. Why aren't you impressed? We have been very hard on ourselves, and you don't even notice it. I will tell you why, I respond. It's because you are fasting to please yourselves. Even while you fast, you keep oppressing your workers. What good is fasting when you keep on fighting and quarrelling? That kind of fasting will never get you anywhere with me. You humble yourselves by going through the motions of penance, bowing your heads like reeds bending in the wind. You dress in burlap and cover yourselves with ashes. Is this what you call fasting? Do you really think this will please the Lord? No. This is the kind of fasting I want. Free those who are wrongly imprisoned. Lighten the burden of those who work for you. Let the oppressed go free and remove the chains that bind people. Share your food with the hungry. Give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them and do not hide from relatives who need your help. Then your salvation will come like the dawn and your wounds will quickly heal. Your godliness will lead you forward and the glory of the Lord will protect you from behind. Then, when you call, the Lord will answer. Yes, I am here. He will quickly reply. 
Remove the heavy yoke of oppression. Stop pointing your finger and spreading vicious rumours. Feed the hungry and help those in trouble. Then your light will shine out from the darkness and the darkness around you will be as bright as noon. The Lord will guide you continually, giving you water when you are dry and restoring your strength. You will be like a well-planted garden, an ever-flowing spring. Some of you will rebuild the deserted ruins of your cities. Then you will be known as a rebuilder of walls and a restorer of homes. Keep the Sabbath day holy. Don't pursue your interests on that day, but enjoy the Sabbath and speak of it with delight as the Lord's holy day. Honour the Sabbath in everything you do on that day and don't follow your own desires or talk idly. Then the Lord will be your delight. I will give you great honour. I will satisfy you with the inheritance I promised your ancestor Jacob. I, the Lord, have spoken. As we do justice and as we give people dignity, light will shine out in the darkness and the darkness will be as bright as noon. We will rebuild the deserted ruins in our cities. We will rebuild the walls and we will restore homes. This stuff matters. And restoring justice is part of the pathway to people coming to God and receiving healing and staying on the path with God. So I can't tell you how to do justice, but hopefully today I've inspired you to work it out for yourself and to look for ways to do it in your own life.